When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about evangelical support for Trump. Despite the fact that he's a sexual predator who had three wives, Frances Fitzgerald will comment. Her new book is The Evangelicals. Also, the mother of all bombs has been dropped on Afghanistan. It's the biggest bomb ever dropped, except for the atom bombs, 30 feet long, with the equivalent of 10 tons of TNT. But will it change anything there? Andrew Basevich will comment on the endless Afghan war. First up, the People's Climate March in Washington, D.C. will be held on Sunday, April 29th. For that, we turn to Bill McKibben. He wrote the first book on global warming, The End of Nature. It's been translated into two dozen languages. He's the founder of 350.org, the first planet-wide grassroots climate change movement. It's organized something like 20,000 rallies around the world in every country except for North Korea. He was the lead organizer of the People's Climate March in New York City in September 2014. That was one of the great political events of our era with hundreds of thousands of people on the streets of Manhattan. Bill went to jail protesting the Keystone XL pipeline. After he got out, President Obama ruled against the pipeline. Now, of course, it's back because of you-know-who. Bill's written a dozen books, most recently Oil and Honey, the education of an unlikely activist. He also teaches at Middlebury College, and he has a new piece at thenation.com this week. It's titled, On April 29th, We March for the Future. We'll either save or doom the planet during the Trump administration. Don't sit this one out. Bill McKibben, welcome back. Hey, it's good to be with you, John. Well, your new piece at The Nation opens with a striking statement that global warming is the biggest thing humans have ever done. Please, please explain. I don't think at this point there's much doubt about that. You know, look around the planet for a moment. We've only got so many giant physical features on this Earth, and each one of them now is uh, in flux. If you look to the North Pole, We've lost half the summer sea ice in the Arctic. If you look to the South Pole, the great ice sheets are beginning to disintegrate. We expect an iceberg the size of whales to drop off the Larsen ice shelf sometime soon. If you look to the oceans, the, the largest living structure on Earth, the Great Barrier Reef, has been decimated by coral bleaching as waters warm over the last two years. If you look at our continental interiors, Dry and arid places are getting steadily drier as drought spreads, and in the wet places we see downpour and flood. It's early stages, the trailer for a movie that's going to get worse and worse and worse as the century wears on, unless we take action very, very soon. 
The People's Climate March on April 29th, was this planned initially as a protest against Donald Trump? No, this was actually people started planning back when no one really thought that Trump would be president, <laughs> back when everyone assumed that we'd be Hillary Clinton and we'd be pushing her to do the things that she promised in the platform to do. But of course, we're in a very different reality now. So part of what's going on is the need for people to say very loudly and very clearly that what Donald Trump is doing is just plain unacceptable, just the most crazy and insane set of things that one could imagine. We're in a crisis, and instead of looking for the solutions, instead of looking for the exit from the burning building, we're just tossing gasoline around left and right. You say global warming isn't really Trump's fault. So whose fault is it? Well, look, the polar ice caps are melting this this winter, and it's not from carbon that came into the atmosphere during the Trump administration. You know, we've been pouring carbon in for a very long time. It has a, a residence time in the atmosphere of upwards of 100 years. So that's, you know, Harry Truman carbon and uh, Yuri Andropov carbon and Deng Xiaoping carbon and Jimmy Carter carbon and uh, all of our carbon over all these years. What Trump's accountable for is at the moment when we desperately need to be changing course, when we have the kind of last possibilities of changing course, he's busily pushing us in the other direction. He's taking away the thing we most need, the kind of little bit of time and margin that we have left. You know, Dwight Eisenhower didn't know anything about the greenhouse effect. Donald Trump may not know anything about it either, but he sure could if he wanted to, because all of science would be happy to tell him. And would you say Trump is is uniquely bad among world leaders? Is he the worst leader in the world when it comes to heating up uh, our planet? Yeah, I'd say that at this point, there's not much doubt about that. All the leaders of the world, every other country on the planet, signed the Paris Climate Accords. And of course, we signed too with Mr. Obama. Um, and now the only country that's threatening to take its signature back and that has already announced that it will not do the things that it promised to do uh, is Donald Trump. That doesn't mean that there's a great number of heroes out there in the world who are doing all that they could be doing. There really aren't. Most leaders remain pretty subservient to the fossil fuel industry. But it means that at least they're saying the right things and taking the easy actions, and Trump won't do even those things. Well, I know some people who argue that Canada's Justin Trudeau has done more to heat up the earth than Donald Trump has. No, I think that would be an overstatement. Trudeau is pretty good on talking about domestic emissions, but he exemplifies the problem, and in a sense is far more hypocritical than Trump exemplifies the problem of being unwilling to take on the fossil fuel industry. You'll recall, perhaps, that in Paris, it was Justin Trudeau and the Canadians who helped set the target that the world agreed on of 1.5 degrees Celsius. A couple of weeks ago in Houston, Justin Trudeau said no country would find 173 billion barrels of oil and then not burn it referring to the amount of oil that's beneath the tar sands in Alberta at the other end of that Keystone Pipeline. His implication was he planned to burn it, 
And if he does, then Canada alone will produce about 30% of the carbon that would take us past that 1.5 degree promise. Uh, that's a country with one half of 1% of the world's population irrigating to itself 30% of the world's remaining carbon budget. So there's plenty of company. Trump, of course, is doing all the same things. He's reopening coal mines. I mean, he's eager to find 18th century technology and resurrect it as fast as he can. So what's going to happen in Washington, D.C. on April 29th? Oh, well, there's going to be, it's going to be a big march. <laughs> and people are going to march and surround the White House. And then there'll be a, a moment of silence in memory of the increasingly huge numbers of people who've already perished as a result of what we're doing to the planet. And when that moment ends, we're going to sound the alarm as loud as ever we can, loud enough, baby, to drown out Fox and friends for a moment and, mm. you know, let the president know that there's actually people on his doorstep. So that's Sunday, April 29th. Uh, the Sunday before that, next Sunday, April 22nd, is the Science March. I don't think we've ever had a Science March on Washington before. What can you tell us about that one? Oh, I think that's going to be really cool. Um, and I think anybody who's a scientist should do their best to get out there with their brethren and sisters in order to make their voices heard. Scientists have, for a long time, avoided anything that might be thought of as political. Their job, as they saw it, was to provide reason and data around things like climate change. And truly, in a rational world, that would be a perfectly good job description. I mean, that's really what they should be doing. But given the fact that reason and data have failed to win the fight against money and power, uh, they're understanding that the times require them to go beyond that. So for scientists, that'll be a good day. And for people who can't make it to Washington, uh, either uh, next Sunday for the Science March or April 29th for the Big March, what what can they do on that those days? In some parts of the country, especially the West Coast, there'll be sister marches on the 29th with people in their own locations. And those will be good things to get to. Um, there's plenty of opportunity. There are plenty of fights to take on for the moment. It's really important that everybody let their politicians know that we understand that this is just nonsense. And I hope that one thing that will happen, John, is that out of this march will come not just resistance to Trump, but a real focus on the progressive alternatives. Two days before the march, Senator Sanders and Senator Merkley of Oregon are introducing a bill that calls for 100% renewable energy. We need everybody to rally around that kind of gold standard, uh, because if and when normal, sane people ever get back in power in D.C., we can't waste another four years or eight years with the kind of half measures that we're seeing from, say, Justin Trudeau. We actually need, finally, to grasp this metal and get to work, do the things that need to be done. Well, as we look around uh, for reasons for hope, I guess we have to look to countries outside uh, our, our own. In your new article in The Nation, you describe some. Denmark seems to provide some reasons for hope. Tell us what's going on in Denmark. Well, it's funny. You'll remember that Denmark was the country that Bernie was talked about the most during his yeah, campaign. Right. And usually because of its you know, emphasis on quality and taking care of 
medical things well and good educational system and so on and so forth. Add to that the fact that Denmark provided last year half its power from the wind alone. Now, either that means the crafty Danes have stolen the world's wind supply for themselves, <laughs> okay. or, or it means they've just taken the technology that everybody now has and put it to use. We've been given a great gift by the engineers. The price of the solar panels dropped 80% in the last decade. If we wanted to do this thing, we could. The question is summoning that political will. The march in Washington, D.C. on April 29th is not going to change Trump's mind. We all know that. So what is the argument for marching? Well, we need to come out of this period, not just returning to the status quo before. We need to come out of it with politicians committed to moving at real pace to do real things. And so we need to really, really come together as a movement. The one possible grayish lining in the black cloud that is Trumpism is precisely that it is bringing people to the realization that we have to act with great seriousness, that the kind of stumbling along that we've been doing only got us into into the mess that we're in. You say the choice about the future is not up to Trump, even though he's president for the next four years. So who will make the choice about the future? Choice is up to us, and it depends on how seriously we engage. Look, this is, as we said, the biggest thing that ever happened on the planet. Uh, in fact, nothing humans have done has ever come close. Big enough that perhaps it's sort of the day of your life to get out there and join with others who are feeling the same way. So we'll see everybody in D.C. on the 29th. Bill McKibben, his new piece at thenation.com this week is titled, On April 29th, We March for the Future. We'll either save or doom the planet during the Trump administration. Don't sit this one out. Bill, thank you for all your work, and thanks for talking with us today. Back at you, John. I know you enjoyed it immensely. How come evangelicals supported Donald Trump last November, even though he's a godless libertine? For some insight, we turn to Frances Fitzgerald. She's won the Pulitzer Prize, the National Book Award, the Bancroft Prize. She's the author of the classic book, Fire in the Lake, which has had such a massive impact on our understanding of Vietnam. She's written many other books. She also writes for The New Yorker, The Atlantic. Harper's, The New York Review, Rolling Stone, and The Nation, and she's a member of the editorial board of The Nation. Her new book is The Evangelicals, The Struggle to Shape America. Frances Fitzgerald, welcome. Thank you, John. Well, first of all, congratulations on getting a book out in Trump's first 100 days that's about the history of the people who made him president. Great timing. <laughs> Luck. <laughs> when did you start on this project? Oh, about six years ago, I think. Just some basic facts. How many people in the United States today call themselves evangelical? 
I think it's about 20%. It's always hard to define evangelical, and different pollsters have, have sometimes different ways of, uh, of figuring that out. Although Trump isn't really the subject of your book, we do want to understand why almost all white evangelicals voted for him. And I, I saw that Trump did not go to church since he became president. Do evangelicals care about that? Well, you know, of course they care, but sometimes other things are, are more important to them and the Republican platform and what uh, Trump has promised them, as opposed to uh, the Democrats who um, have, have never been terribly sympathetic to their, their actual policy desires. Uh, oh, and one other fact we need to know, what proportion of white evangelicals do we think voted for Trump? Well, that's the 81%. 81%. And let's make it clear, we are not going to talk about evangelicals who are not white. Your book is about white evangelicals, and please explain why you focus that way. It would have had to be two books if it had been also about um, African-American evangelicals, because um, the two groups simply had almost nothing to do with each other, except you know, hostility for a while. I mean, the, the African-American churches were largely concerned with slavery, segregation, attempts to um, improve themselves and their communities, whereas uh, white evangelicals have had all kinds of other objectives, including in, in the case of the South, uh, um, maintaining slavery. Why do evangelicals even care about public policy in America? Why do they care about the Republican platform? Isn't, isn't God's kingdom the one that matters? And isn't the Republican platform just a tiny speck in, in, in their uh, universe? Isn't the task of e evangelicals to get right with the Lord and not with Donald Trump? Well, some would say that, and uh, there's been great criticism of Trump from, from uh, some, some of the leading evangelicals. But um, just like everyone else in this country, evangelicals are very affected by uh, government policies. He's, he's um, already uh, appointed something like five people who are, including his vice president, I mean, who are Christian right or part of the Christian right movement. Well, one of the things I learned from your book, The Evangelicals, is that evangelicals weren't always interested in the Republican platform. They weren't always interested in, in politics. I, I, I never heard anything about the evangelical vote in, in the New Deal era or in World War II. When, when did this uh, change happen and how did it happen? Well, you didn't hear about it partly because it wasn't reported. I, I think that... Um, Liberal Protestants in particular simply you know, go into denial when it comes to evangelicals. I quote Joe Connison as saying that political reporting has been um, a cycle of uh, neglect followed by sensationalism followed by more neglect. It seems like today's evangelicals really e emerged in response to what you call the long 60s, that there, there was a specific, I guess, what we might call the sins of the 60s, especially feminism and gay liberation brought them into political activism more than they had been for the previous uh, couple of decades. Is that fair to say? Oh, that's certainly fair to say. You know, in the background, too, is uh, economic conservatism. Well, do they, do they care about tax cuts for the rich or cutting back government regulations on, on business? Is that something that uh, Jesus has spoken to them about? 
Well, um, Jerry Falwell said it was in the book of parables. <laughs> okay. But um, I, uh, I don't think that everyone thinks that way. I think that, though, that there was an amazing split this time between the pastors and the, the laity. This is according to a poll done by an evangelical group called Lifeways. And um, they found that the pastors tended to vote on religious issues, you know, religious freedom, on justices of the Supreme Court. The laity said um, economics and um, foreign, foreign policy or, you know, terrorism. We're, we're talking as if uh, evangelicals have always focused on the Republican platform, but this wasn't always a Republican thing. I, I, Jimmy Carter was a born-again Christian, wasn't he? Did evangelicals vote for Jimmy Carter? They voted for him the first time as one of their own, which he certainly was, but not the second time because they felt that uh, their interests were not being served by him, that, in, that he had become a liberal. And um, they were looking for somebody who would uh, be far more sympathetic to their causes. And they found it in Reagan, who, who um, rhetorically, anyway, um, wound them around his little finger. Okay. Has there ever been a president tied as closely to the evangelicals as Donald Trump is right now? You've mentioned uh, Reagan. You've mentioned Jimmy Carter. Um, well, yes, George W. Bush. And how did George W. Bush do more than the Trump has done to win evangelical support? In his first election, he had a majority of evangelicals but vote, but um, he had less than Bob Dole even, in spite of the fact that he, he was born again himself. And uh, it was only in his second election that, that he got um, uh, a much higher uh, percentage of their vote. And why was, why was that? Well, because he proved to them that he was watching out for their interests, ban on partial birth abortion and that kind of thing. And he was also a hero to them because of 9-11 and, and the Iraq War, um, which they supported more than any other group in, in the United States. In the recent Republican primary, there were some Republican candidates who really were evangelicals. Ted Cruz, for example, his father was a fairly prominent uh, evangelical minister. Why did the white evangelicals go for Trump rather than for Ted Cruz or, or one of the other people who was more closely identified with their religious views? Well, I tell you, it surprised a lot of evangelicals, particularly the religious right, which, which uh, you know, came together in, in a group and, uh, and decided to endorse uh, Ted Cruz. And uh, evangelicals voted for Trump anyway. So they're just not listening to the people who formerly used to be able to sort of tell them what to do, how to vote. As I said, they were they were voting on on uh, economics and uh, on um, national security. One of the things I learned from your book, The Evangelicals, is that young evangelicals today care really only about one big issue. Abortion is their issue, and they're not as interested in a lot of the things that their parents and grandparents were interested in. I know uh, the Bible uh, has a lot to say about homosexuality. The Bible is against homosexuality, but the Bible doesn't really have anything much to say about abortion. So how come abortion has emerged as, as the millennials' big issue? Uh, well, it's it's been growing um, ever since, let's say, the beginning of the 80s. Um, in the, in the past, it it uh, was not much of a of of a, um, a concern to evangelicals, most of whom 
just like liberal Protestants were for what they called therapeutic abortions, meaning, you know, rape, incest, but also harm to the mother. And the harm included psychological harm. So that could mean almost anything. What they didn't like was was um, what they call abortion on demand and uh, allowing anybody to to have one that wanted one, just as Roe v. Wade uh, says. Uh, but it, it really, it took years of uh, propaganda from uh, the religious right, mainly from Francis Schaeffer and, and others like him, to convince evangelicals in general that, that this was an important thing, because it had always been a Catholic issue. And so that, that, was, that counted a lot, because these same people couldn't stand the Catholics. Right. So it, it took a while to convince them that abortion was murder, as the Catholics say. Then once um, convinced, they became more Catholic than the Catholics on this issue because um, it uh, connected with um, what they saw as the sort of uh, destruction of the sort of Victorian patriarchal family, which is what they have been um, supporting all these years. The book is The Evangelicals, The Struggle to Shape America. The author is Francis Fitzgerald. Thanks so much. Thank you. Next up, the news from Afghanistan. Maybe you saw that last week the United States dropped the mother of all bombs there, 30 feet long, weighing 21,000 pounds, with the equivalent of 10 tons of TNT. It created a blast radius a mile wide in a mushroom cloud seen 20 miles away. It was the largest non-nuclear bomb ever dropped by the U.S. military, so big that instead of being dropped by a conventional bomber, it had to be pushed out of a cargo plane while attached to a parachute. The Afghan military is now saying the biggest non-nuclear bomb ever dropped killed only 94 ISIS fighters, and the United States is not confirming that figure. It doesn't seem like killing 94 ISIS fighters is going to change the war in Afghanistan very much. In fact, nothing seems to have changed the Afghan war very much. For comment, we turn to Andrew Basevich. He's a retired professor of history and international relations at Boston University. He's a graduate of the U.S. Military Academy. He served for 23 years as a commissioned officer in the United States Army. He received his Ph.D. in American diplomatic history from Princeton. He's also taught at West Point and at Johns Hopkins University. His three recent books, Breach of Trust, Washington Rules, and The Limits of Power, all hit the New York Times bestseller list. And his most recent book, it's called America's War for the Greater Middle East, has been longlisted for the National Book Award. He publishes often in the L.A. Times, the New York Times, and The Nation. Andrew Basevich, welcome back. Well, thanks very much. Well, remind us how long we've been fighting a war in Afghanistan. Well, it began in October of 2001. That was the uh, first military action that George W. Bush initiated uh, after 9-11, and uh, we've been at it ever since. And how many American casualties have we had, and how much have we spent? Well, it's substantially more than 2,000 dead, uh, 20,000 wounded, and I think uh, most uh, surprising is that the total cost of the war, even taking into account inflation, I should say the total cost we've invested in 
rebuilding that country, even taking account into inflation, is greater than we spent on the Marshall Plan to rebuild uh, uh, Europe after World yeah. War II. So uh, the, the, the sums are, are staggering, and I think uh, I would argue, and frankly I think most people would acknowledge that the uh, results have, are, are disappointing at best. I, I looked up civilian casualties. The figures that I found were 26,000 civilian deaths due to war-related violence and about 30,000 uh, wounded civilians. Does that sound right to you? It sounds about right. You know, in this uh, recent piece that I, I published on Afghanistan, I didn't mention uh, Afghan casualties, and quite frankly, I didn't because I don't think very many Americans uh, care about that. I think they're wrong not to care. I think that the numbers you just cited uh, ought to, must, uh, factor into any moral evaluation of the results of our, our war there. But in terms of something that's going to influence American opinion, I don't, think, I don't think very many Americans care about how many Afghans get killed. I don't think they care about how many Iraqis have been killed. Uh, since we invaded that country in 2003. So this started out as uh, George W. Bush's war, then it became uh, Barack Obama's war, now it's Donald Trump's war. What has President Trump said about the war in Afghanistan? Uh, he certainly uh, didn't mention the war in his inaugural address. He didn't mention the war in his recent appearance before uh, uh, the Congress. Uh, his principal subordinates, uh, such as Defense Secretary Mattis, uh, have rarely spoken about the war. We, the, the, the generals uh, parade back from Kabul and places like that from time to time uh, to render a progress report, uh, but, but the sort of the general public response to that, it, it's basically a shrug. Nobody's paying attention to this war. It occurred to me when I, I published the recent op-ed, I thought to myself, you know, I think this is like the fourth time I've written the same op-ed. Mm. I just keep republishing it every two years uh, because nothing much changes. The war continues, uh, <laughs> money gets spent, people get killed, and the prospect of bringing things to some kind of a conclusion, to being able to achieve our stated political purposes, simply is close to non-existent. You know, Donald Trump has said we have to start winning wars again. Um, yeah. Is there any sign that he has intentions of doing something different that would that he would call uh, a strategy of winning in Afghanistan? Uh, not that I can see, or, or, or in Iraq, Syria, for that matter. I mean, the win-win-win the, the rhetoric, I think, did figure as a major theme of his candidacy prior to the election uh, in terms of actions taken with regard to our ongoing wars since the inauguration. It's really been more of the same, uh, with a, a modest ratcheting up of, of effort. Recent news reports tell us we now have uh, a small number of U.S. troops in Syria. Uh, we're deploying an additional small number of troops to Kuwait, perhaps to be positioned to participate in that war. Uh, but, but it's hard to say that those constitute significant changes to the way that President Obama was conducting the war. The general who is currently in command of our forces fighting in Afghanistan, I 
think most people don't know him, General John Nicholson. I understand he did come to Washington recently to report on his progress. You mentioned this very briefly. What what did he have to say about how the war is going there? Yeah, you know, I have to say you just made an important point that, that hadn't occurred to me, and that is that I think you're right. 99% of our fellow citizens probably don't know the name of the general who is in charge of conducting the longest war in American history. And I think that alone is indicative of the absence of serious attention. So he did appear before the Senate Armed Services Committee uh, and and made a pitch for an additional five or 6,000 troops. Again, not not proposing a a radical change in course, uh, but arguing that an additional increment of of troops would uh, would continue the effort. His presentation described the war as stalemated. Uh, you know, we're in his what 16th year. He, he he calls it stalemated. Although he said he used a phrase something to the effect that uh, an equilibrium that favored the government. I have no idea how to translate that. I do know what stalemated means. And and frankly, I I don't understand how at this stage of this long war introducing a few additional thousand U.S. forces would have any significant impact on that stalemate. The, the surge, the famous surge of the Obama years, how many uh, extra soldiers did we send to Afghanistan for the famous surge? 30,000, three zero. And uh, remind us how that worked out. Well, it, it, it didn't work out. Uh, it's already a forgotten episode, I think, uh, but uh, to, to remind listeners... When Obama was running for the presidency, he promised to win the Afghanistan war, bring it to a successful conclusion. In his effort to do that, uh, when General Stanley McChrystal had become the commander there, uh, McChrystal came up with a plan, and the plan said, I'm going to apply counterinsurgency doctrine, and given additional resources, I'm going to demonstrate that counterinsurgency doctrine is the way to win. Uh, and uh, Obama gave him 30,000 troops, and Obama gave him an 18-month calendar, uh, and it flat-out didn't work. McChrystal had selected a place called Marja uh, as, as, the, as the test case, the, the, the proof of concept. He was going to kick the Taliban out of Marja, install a government uh, in Marja, and thereby win the hearts and minds of, of Afghans in that particular part of the country, it just didn't work. Uh, and soon thereafter, McChrystal's kind of imploded when he had, a, uh, had uh, the, the, the scandal related to the uh, notorious article in, in Rolling Stone magazine. And, and as far as I can tell, uh, after McChrystal passed from the scene, we haven't had any commanders uh, who claim that, that the war is winnable. We are managing a stalemate. Uh, and um, one has to wonder when the American people, or or perhaps somebody on Capitol Hill, will ask whether a stalemated war uh, after 16 years is really acceptable. Well, the big question is, why doesn't anyone in Congress seem to care? Why doesn't anyone in Washington seem to care about the failure of the war? Right, I mean, right now, casualties, U.S. casualties, American casualties, are low, infrequent. Uh, and, and the one thing that does seem to get Americans, to include members of Congress, to pay attention to the war, is when there's lots of Americans who are being killed. Yeah. Uh, so 
low low U.S. casualties, which became which really is a uh, a, a a result of the shift in in the way we wage these wars under Obama. U.S. casualties went way down. That allows the Congress and the American people to sort of tune tune the war out. And the the result, certainly not intended, but I think of significant uh, consequence, is that war becomes normal. Yeah. Uh, as I said a moment ago, this is a war that is stalemated, and we are managing the stalemate. So it is no longer controversial. It's almost not even noticeable that the United States of America is at war. And, of course, Afghanistan is not the only war. It happens to be the longest one. But Iraq certainly is a long war. And we have these lesser uh, conflicts that were involved in places like Yemen, Somalia, occasionally Libya, occasionally Pakistan. And there's a remarkably little discussion of when these wars will end or how they could be ended or, or why they must be continued or what they are costing. It's simply taken for granted that this is, you know, this is what happens in, in the present, day, present moment. We're just a country that is at war. Andrew Basevich, he wrote about the never-ending war in Afghanistan for the New York Times op-ed page. Mr. Basevich, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you very much for having me on. We recorded that interview before the big bomb was dropped. Finally, a word about this week's episode of Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast. Dave talks with the first and only female CEO in the history of the National Football League, Amy Trask. She ran the Raiders, and Dave asks her what she thinks about the Raiders moving from the grit of Oakland to the glitz of Las Vegas. And don't miss last week's episode, when Dave and comedian Hari Kondabalu, a couple of baseball fans, complain about everything that's wrong with the sport. It's a terrific segment. That's on Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide. Tune in every Tuesday at thenation.com slash edgeofsports. Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles by Ernesto Orellano with additional technical assistance from Justin Allen. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.